Good morning, church family. It's a joy to be able to preach God's word to you this morning. I said this in the first service, and I want to say to you all as well, that sometimes when I preach particular passages and topics of Scripture, I kind of wish that I could make like a hologram of myself and record myself, and then we could create a third service, and I could come down from the pulpit and listen to my own message. Not because I think the message will be so great, but because I desperately need to hear the same, the same word that I'm preaching to others. So many years ago now, um, my daughter Evie and I were having a conversation in the car, and we were laughing, and we were joking, and we just had like a really, we're having a really good time. And then she suddenly just in the car interrupts and says, she says, you know, Dad, there's this one time that you yelled at me when I was little, and I thought I would never forgive you. And then she said, but now look at us. And I thought, we both laughed about that, because it was very funny, but it made me think of a couple of things. One, children are very forgiving, And two, our words leave a lasting impression. I remember after we had a laugh, just kind of thinking on what she had said and thinking, man, that is not the legacy that I want to leave for my children. And so the reason why I picked this passage and to preach on this topic is not so that I can just preach at all the angry people in the room, but because I knew that it would force me to study and dive deeply into the scriptures so that I might fight and put to death my own sin. So my prayer is that by God's grace, it would help you to do the same. Let's go to scripture. Our scripture this morning is James chapter 1, verses 19 through 21. James chapter 1, verses 19 through 21. My dear brothers and sisters, understand this. Everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to anger. For human anger does not accomplish God's righteousness. Therefore, Ridding yourselves of all moral filth and the evil that is so prevalent, humbly receive the implanted word which is able to save your souls. Would you pray with me? Father, we come before you in the name of your Son, needing our eyes to be redirected to the cross. Father, would you do that this morning? Would you encourage us? Would you convict us? Would you challenge us? Lord, only you know all the needs that are in this room, and only you, through the power of the Spirit and your word, can meet them all. So I ask that you would do that. God, I would pray for those who struggle with the sin of anger and who hate it, that you would encourage them to keep fighting and keep looking to Christ. I pray for those who minimize their sinful anger or think maybe their aggression is even a a virtue that you would convince them from the word that it's not and that they would fight to honor you in all of life. May they look to the cross as well. Father, help us now. It's in the matchless name of Jesus we pray. Amen. It was the year of 1894 when one of the biggest tragedies in American sports occurred. 
It was a regular season professional baseball game that involved the teams of Baltimore and Boston. This was just an ordinary game until Tommy Tucker slid into third base and was kicked in the face by the third baseman, John McGraw. This incident started a brawl between the players and eventually both teams. And then the hostility spread even amongst the fans and someone lit the stadium on fire. It burnt the entire stadium to the ground. However, the fire didn't stop there. It spread and destroyed over 200 buildings in the city of Boston while leaving many families without homes. This incident was later known as the Great Roxbury Fire of 1894. Think with me for a moment how quickly a small amount of unchecked anger between two baseball players spread and led to such devastation for an entire city. The type of anger that spreads and leaves devastation is not just that of physical violence. The same angry heart that can lead someone to kill and harm physically can also lead someone to kill and harm verbally. And both of these manifestations of sinful anger lead to destruction. If you remember, James 3, 5 through 6 says, Consider how a small fire sets ablaze a large force, and the tongue is a fire. The tongue, a world of unrighteousness, is placed amongst our members. And as if our fallen hearts needed any more temptation... We have found ourselves in a culture of outrage that modern technology has provided an unrestrained voice to. We can now express our anger and outrage over anything, anytime, and with little consequence. And sadly, this behavior has even influenced the church. We often say what we feel in the name of venting, And the damaging effects spread while causing division and bringing reproach on the name of Christ. This is what James says in chapter 3, verses 9 through 10. Talking to professing Christians about their speech. He says, With the tongue we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse people who are made in God's likeness. Out of the same mouth come praise and cursing. Let me ask you, How many times have you praised God during worship, said amen during the sermon, and then the first thing out of your mouth, in the car, on the way home, is about who or what you are frustrated by at church? What should we do about this sinful tendency that we all have? Should we just sweep it under the rug because we all struggle with it? Should we minimize, deflect, and make excuses for our sin in this way? The real question that we need to ask is, what does the Bible say? Is this the counsel that James would give to his readers? No, he says, my brothers and sisters, this should not be. The sinful anger that is expressed towards one another with our words and actions must be put to death because this sin is actually what put our Savior to death. His death for us is what has transferred us from the kingdom of darkness where our sinful anger once reigned. His death for us has transferred us into a new and better kingdom where our life should now say, Jesus reigns. 
And as blood-bought citizens of his kingdom, we are to represent our king, not just in name only, but with every aspect of our lives. The primary concern of my life should no longer be, my will be done, my kingdom come. The primary concern of my life should now be, how can I submit to him in his kingdom, in all of my life? The new life I have been saved to is not just for the favorable circumstances of life, but in all circumstances of life. By God's grace, I can sing whatever my God ordains is right and then seek to live in such a way that others really believe that. This type of life that reflects belonging to a new kingdom is one of the primary concerns that James is writing with. Leading up to our passage, James has written about trials, temptation, and our salvation. He now wants to communicate how we must live practically in light of those realities. Now, it's important to know that James is the brother of Jesus and a leader of the Jerusalem church. He was likely writing to Jewish Christians living outside of Palestine. We know elsewhere from this letter that many of these believers were poor and oppressed. And so James writes, knowing that these brothers and sisters would have been tempted towards sinful anger, perhaps with one another, unbelievers, and even at the Lord himself. I'm sure it would have been tempting to grow weary of their circumstances and to be tempted to take matters into their own hands. Now, lest we assume that we're ta- when talking about anger that we all have the same thing in mind, I think it would be helpful to provide a definition of what we're talking about. Author David Pallison, I think, provides a helpful and biblical definition when he says, Anger is the way we react when something we think important is not the way it's supposed to be. Let me say that again. Anger is the way we react when something we think important is not the way it's supposed to be. And you might be thinking, well, what's wrong with that? You may even be thinking, I mean, isn't anger a a good emotion given by God? Isn't there a type of anger that the Bible says is righteous and good? I mean, didn't Jesus get angry? And I would say that you're correct. But the problem is our sinful hearts twist the good emotional reaction of anger. The problem is so often our anger is mostly our reaction to something God would not say is wrong. The problem is that our anger is mostly our reaction to something God would not say is important. The problem is that our anger is mostly our reaction to something God would not say things are supposed to be. The problem is that our anger is mostly, mostly motivated, not with a concern for others and God's kingdom, but for ourselves and our little kingdoms. Let me ask you these uh, searching heart questions so that you can determine whether your anger is right or sinful. Is your anger about the glory of God? Is your anger something God would be angry about? Is your anger under control? Does your anger lead to merciful action? Does your anger lead to fruitful results? Does your anger lead to benefiting others. I think if we're honest with ourselves, we would have to admit most of our anger would not fall into the category of righteous. 
Most of our anger is driven by our selfish and sinful desire to get what we want for our own glory. Our sinful anger, it comes as a result of forgetting that we are not the king of the story. Our sinful anger is actually our functional attempt to replace God on his throne. Brothers and sisters, our sinful anger belittles our good king and misrepresents his kingdom to a watching world. Every time we give in to our sinful anger, every time we are operating in a kind of godlike mode that expects others submit to submit to our rule in a way they were only meant to submit to God. This is what James is writing about and writing against in our passage. This is the sinful heart response that he would have us to put to death in order to rightly live as citizens of the kingdom of God. He says right before our passage in chapter 1, verse 18, if you look there, he says, By his own choice he gave us birth by the word of truth so that we would be a kind of firstfruits of his creatures. So the question we must ask in light of being chosen and saved by God is how must we now live? How should we now live? What should now change as a result of being redeemed by Jesus? First, from our passage, James would say our speech and reactions towards God, one another, and those around us. We must put to death the remaining sinful anger in our hearts, both as individuals and together, if we would be a community that would rightly reflect the gospel that has saved us. So from our text, what I want to do is I want us to see three reasons why we must put our anger to death. Three reasons why we must put our anger to to death from our passage. If you're taking notes, this is essentially my outline. First, we must put our anger to death because it's commanded. That's verse 19. Second, we must put our anger to death because it's fruitless. That's verse 20. And third, we must put our anger to death because we have the solution. That's verse 21. So first, we must put our anger to death because it's commanded. Before we look more closely at the command, we must not overlook how James first addresses his readers. He refers to them as my dear brothers and sisters. And what this communicates is the deep affection for his intended audience. Lest his readers think that the coming exhortation is from a place of indifference, the words he chooses to express express his love and concern for these precious saints. He first communicates his care, and then he second communicates the importance of what he is about to say. When James says, understand this, he is trying to grab the attention of his readers. The way he is speaking to us should lead us to lean in and to listen carefully. So what is the command that he thinks is vitally important for his readers? In verse 19, he says, understand this. Everyone, everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to anger. Now, we should note that this command comes with no qualifications and comes with no exceptions that would get anyone out of obedience. We should also note that this command is primarily concerned with our character. 
This command is concerned with rightly living as a follower of King Jesus. If we were to ask James, what should life as a citizen in the kingdom of God look like? This is one of the commands that he would point to. If he asked James, what what does life distinct from the world look like? This is one of the commands that he would point us to. Why would he point us to this command? Because the world operates in the exact opposite way of this command. In this fallen world, everyone is slow to listen, quick to speak, and is easily angered. So when James gives this command to his readers, we need to know that he wasn't telling them something that they haven't heard before. This command is simply a reminder for the church because James knows our tendency to forget. In the heat of the moment, our flesh can easily dismiss and ignore this command. In the moments of our neglect as Christians, we have this sinful tendency to be slow to listen, quick to speak, and are easily angered. This is why James reminds us, first, as Christians, we must be quick to listen. In the language that he uses means that we should be quick with respect To hearing. So we need to ask why does James address our listening first in regards to anger? Well, do you think it's because he knows our quick tendency to assume the worst? Do you think it's because he knows our quick tendency to assume we already know? Do you think it's because he knows our quick tendency to act before we think? James addresses our listening up front because he knows the fallenness of the human heart. How easily we are provoked to anger when we fail to intentionally listen to others first. We must know that being quick to listen is not merely listening to words while thinking about my response. Can't tell you how many times I do that with my teenager. Being quick to listen is not merely listening to words while allowing my mind to drift away. The listening that James has in mind would involve both hearing and understanding. It's not just about hearing words. If I'm not understanding, then I'm asking thoughtful questions and taking the time to listen. I'm listening in such a way that would prevent me from rushing to make my points making quick judgments or final conclusion. In other words, what the person has to say right in front of me is what I deem most important. Being quick to listen is actually demonstrating Christ-like sacrificial love. Looking back at the failures of my own listening, I can just hear the wisdom of Proverbs 18.13 rebuking me. The one who gives an answer before he listens, this is foolishness and a disgrace for him. When I'm slow to listen, I function as if I'm the most valuable person, more valuable even than the person that I should be carefully listening to. I function as if I'm at the center of the universe and people exist for me. You see, the slowness of our listening, it just reveals a heart that has elevated itself above others. However, James not only says we should be quick to listen, he says we should be 
slow to speak. How many times have we been in conversations and rather than exercising self-control, we just let our words fly out without any thought. And just the more that we speak from emotion or without careful thought, the more our sinful anger tends to just unleash on others or even about others when they're not in the room. Let me ask you, has that ever produced any good fruit in your life or in the life of others? I know it hasn't in my life, certainly not for those around me. When I think often about the moments of my careless speech, I'm just reminded of the wisdom of Proverbs 10.19. It says, when there are many words, sin is unavoidable, but the one who controls his lips is prudent. You might be thinking, well, I'm just going to keep my hand over my mouth for the rest of my life. I don't think James is saying we should never speak. We are called to proclaim the truth in love, both to the world and to one another. The first two commands does not mean that we should never speak. But it does mean there should be a new spirit-produced impulse in our redeemed hearts that listens, thinks, and then speaks. When quick speech is the habitual pattern of our lives, we are functioning as if we have all the wisdom. We function as if the other person has nothing to offer us. We need no counselors. So recently I had an old friend reach out to me. I hadn't talked to him in years. And I did think the lack of our communication was a bit odd, but I sort of just chalked it up to our lives are kind of moving fastly in different directions and just normal life stuff. But recently he confessed to me that he had been sinfully holding on to bitterness towards me when we used to meet together on a consistent basis. And one of the things that he said to me is that he felt like when we were meeting that he would share his struggles with me, but then when I share them, I always share them in such a way that he thought that I had already conquered everything. So he's like, oh yeah, I struggle with this, but trust in the Lord, God's sovereign. And I sort of just like shut off all communication, all counsel, or all, all ways that he could speak into my life. A very prideful way of just over-speaking and not allowing others to help me. Now, I don't remember intentionally doing this, but in my youthful pride, and even knowing my own pride now, I'm sure I did. I apologized, and he apologized, which led to reconciliation. Do you have the same tendency? Quick to speak to offer what you think others should hear. Quick to speak to only share with others in, in such a way that closes them off from speaking into your life. Brothers and sisters, if you rarely listen and are always speaking, you are missing out on the Lord's means of growing you and making you more like Jesus. You're, you're missing out on helping others to grow to be more like Jesus. He has put people in your life for your spiritual good, and he has put you in other people's lives for their spiritual good. I think James orders the first two commands intentionally because he knows for us to follow this third one, we have to obey the first two. He says, thirdly, we must be slow to anger. The anger that James would have had in mind would be everything from uncontrolled outburst 
deep-seated wrath and violent actions. I think you can even extend that to sort of withdrawing, giving people the cold shoulder, sort of a slow burn internally that doesn't manifest itself outwardly as much. What is sinful anger? It's a heart response from a lack of self-control that seeks to take matters into its own hands. I see what I think is the problem, and I see what is important to me. I think what is happening is wrong, so without thought or care, I attempt to fix the problem in a way that dishonors God. When I become sinfully angry, I function as if I should be in sovereign control of all things. The quickness of our anger reveals a heart that wants to be served as the king, whether we say that out loud or not. Paul Tripp says, anger does embarrassingly expose the fact that although we acclaim allegiance to the kingdom of God, we have a deep allegiance to our own kingdom. Our anger reveals there are areas of our hearts that still love living for our own kingdom. How often is this truth exposed in our relationships with friends, family, church members, and co-workers? Now, much of what we have talked about is being quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to anger has focused on our relationship with other people. But I think there is an element that James had in mind with our relationship with the Lord. We are often slow to listen to his word, quick to offer complaints, and quick to become angry when he doesn't deliver what we desire. Do you see why James wants to remind us of this command? Do you see why heeding this command is essential to our Christian witness both individually and together? We cannot reflect the character of God while living like we want to replace him at the same time. The love for our kingdom and his kingdom will never coexist in our hearts. One will eventually choke out the other. This command from James, it really does, it causes us to examine ourselves, to examine our speech how we treat one another. Do you remember the anger of Haman in the book of Esther? This is what the scripture says. It says, The entire royal staff at the king's gate bowed down and paid homage to Haman because the king had commanded this to be done for him. But Mordecai would not bow down or pay homage. When Haman saw that Mordecai was not bowing down or paying him homage, he was filled with wrath. I think if we took an honest look at our lives, I think we could all identify more closely with Haman than we would ever like to admit. Ask yourself good heart questions when it comes to your anger. Does your anger resemble Haman? Does your anger demand others to bow down and to pay homage to your wants and desires? Hear James, my brothers and sisters. He says, understand this. Everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to anger. We must put our anger to death because it is commanded. But James also shows us that we must put our anger to death because it's actually fruitless. He wants to persuade us with the reason of why we must resist our anger. He says we must, excuse me, second is we must put our anger to death because it's fruitless. In verse 20, James gives us the reason why we must be slow to anger. He says, For human anger does not accomplish God's righteousness. 
Now, it's likely that the original readers would have been tempted toward anger because of the various trials that they were experiencing. Perhaps the the pressure of their circumstances would have made it easy to, to sort of turn on one another or even on the Lord. It's likely that there would have been a real temptation to seek revenge with their words and actions towards their oppressors. But regardless of how they were being tempted to become sinfully angry in their circumstances, James wants to remind them that sinful anger will never accomplish or produce the righteous life that pleases God. Sinful anger will never please God no matter what kind of end results it brings. Why is this the case? Because our sinful anger acts from a place of unbelief in the character and in the promises of God. We believe that God is not acting, so we need to take matters into our own hands. Really sinful anger just believes the complaint of Habakkuk, the prophet, that it's actually true. This is what the prophet says. How long, Lord, must I call for help, and you do not listen or cry out to you about violence, and you do not save Why do you force me to look at injustice? Why do you tolerate wrongdoing? Oppression and violence are right in front of me. Strife is ongoing and conflict escalates. This is why the law is ineffective and justice never emerges. Now, we might not say these types of words out loud, but how often, fathers or mothers, is this the posture of our hearts at bedtime? I think if we want to reveal what kingdom we're really living for, I think bedtime often exposes that the most. I'd like to say uh, bedtime in our home every night looks like me reading uh, sweet stories to the kids and then then sort of uh, silently and slowly drifting off to sleep. And it's just like this picture-perfect story in the Leatherberry home. But that sometimes is not the case. Sometimes it looks like the kids constantly getting out of bed And me sinfully yelling at them to go to bed. And you know what that accomplishes? You know what I have found that to produce? Not the righteousness of God. Christian, our sinful anger replaces trust in God with a sort of trust in ourselves to accomplish what we think he can. And although we hear Jesus say, apart from me, you can do nothing, we say in our sinful anger, I can get things done without you. We must know that leaving the fruits of the Spirit behind in the name of getting things done will never be able to accomplish God's righteousness. The question of the redeemed is not, how can I get things done the quickest way to get the fastest results that my flesh desire? The question of the redeemed is, how can I live a life that accomplishes God's righteousness? How can I live to submit my life under Him? To honor him. James would say by being quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to anger. This is the way that we show that there is a better king and a better kingdom to live for. Do you really believe that Jesus is a better king than you? Have you ever regretted entrusting things to the Lord? He is a better judge. He'll be able to one day sort out all what we can't in this life. Now, does this mean that James is saying Christians should just be passive? That we should never act in the face of injustice? No, that 
is not what James is trying to communicate, I don't think. So many years ago, we lived on the seminary campus at Midwestern. And one of the things that we loved about living on the seminary campus is that there were plenty of kids uh, for our children to play with. And in particular, where we lived, we lived uh, in an apartment on the second floor, and below us was a missionary furlough home. And we loved that missionary, uh, missionaries coming home from, from overseas would come to rest, and, and they would, uh, we get to a chance to know different families that were serving on the mission field. Our children got to, uh, to meet kids that had been on the mission field, and it was just a really sweet season of life. There was one family in particular, though, that had several boys who liked playing with my oldest daughter, Lily, on the playground. And I remember there was one time in the past that Lily came in and she told us that there were a bunch of kids bullying her on the playground. you think that would never happen, like on a seminary campus, right? Sin follows you at seminary as well. But she told us also in the story that even though these kids were bullying her, that one of the uh, missionary boys who, that she had grown uh, friends with he stood in front of her and he told her, he said, don't worry now, the rocks will just hit me instead of you. And when she told us that, I just sort of smiled and I thought, man, what a picture of the gospel that this young man just demonstrated towards our daughter. So amazing. And I think this is also an example of a type of anger that doesn't lead to passivity, but merciful action that honors God. When we see injustice that is real and actually injustice in God's eyes, we should mercifully act and respond. But we should do so while trusting God will ultimately be the one that brings about perfect justice for every wrong. His judgment will always be more fair and right than ours ever could. Brothers and sisters, we must put our sinful anger to death because it will never bring glory to the one who has redeemed us. We must put our sinful anger to death because it will always be fruitless. So then how do we kill this sin in our lives? For some of you, I know it feels enslaving. It feels like there's no hope. This leads to the third reason. We must put our sinful anger to death because we do have the solution. We must put our anger to death because we have the solution. If sinful anger is not the right response that honors God then we must ask, what is the proper response? How are we to begin actually putting it to death? Look down again at verse 21. He says, Therefore, ridding yourselves of all moral filth and evil that is so prevalent. He uses the word therefore to connect the conclusion of our passage to the previous verses about anger. He is saying the proper response to our anger and how we begin putting it to death, it starts with repentance. When he says ridding yourselves, it should prompt us to think about the process of repentance described in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 22. If you remember, Paul says to take off your former way of life, the old self that is corrupted by deceitful desires. In the picture the scriptures give us, communicate that repentance is more than just an apology. It involves actually putting off sinful practices. One commentator says the image that James is giving us is one of stripping off the old, dirty, pre-Christian clothes that we used to wear. And notice the vocabulary of James as he describes the sin we are told to rid ourselves from. He says we are to rid ourselves of all moral filth and evil. 
Now, I think James would have had more than, in mind than just the sin of anger. But I think given the context, he had anger primarily in view. The words that James uses to describe sin and anger in particular, I think are helpful for us. If we would put our sin to death, we must talk about our sin with biblical language. Jay Adams said this, he said, when we use biblical labels, we can actually find biblical solutions. Far too often, we use language that minimizes our sin, and what that will do is it will only give our flesh more reasons to keep it around longer. We tend to use words for our sinful anger like venting, upset, irritated, or frustrated. I do that all the time. But I wonder, would you ever describe your sinful anger as moral filth or evil? I know that's not my first inclination. When describing your sinful anger, do you attempt to clean it up before you confess it to others? Do you attempt to explain it away because of stress and difficulty? Brothers and sisters, I don't think we're just playing word games that just don't matter. I think until we begin seeing and communicating our sin rightly to others, we will never be able to put it to death. I think until we begin seeing our sin the way that God does, in the way that God sees it, will always diminish its seriousness. I think until we begin seeing that our sinful anger is not due to something outside of us, but it actually comes from within us, we'll never be able to put it to death. The sin of anger is so serious. It's not just some little sin. Those who refuse to turn from it will spend an eternity in hell. This is why we must listen and heed the instruction of James to rid ourselves of it. Charles Spurgeon commenting on this verse says this, Do not say, I cannot help having a bad temper. Friends, you must help it. Pray God to help you to overcome it at once. For either you must kill it or it will kill you. You cannot carry a bad temper into heaven. Isn't that sobering? Notice James communicates, though, that repentance is more than turning from and ridding ourselves of sin. It is that. But it also involves turning to something infinitely better. It involves turning to a person. He says in the second half of verse 21 that we are to humbly receive the implanted word which is able to save your souls. Shortly after I was converted, I participated in a ministry at a local homeless shelter. And it was with some uh, older men in our previous church. During my time there, we would sing, pray, preach the word, share our testimonies. And it was just a a fantastic time of evangelizing uh, and encouraging people. And there was one older man in our group that would always uh, lead us. And he would always start by, by saying the same thing to these men that came off the street struggling with a number of different sins. He would always start by telling them that salvation is more than just quitting things. He said it's, it means turning from your sin, but also turning to Jesus and trusting in him as your only hope. This is what biblical repentance is and what James has in mind. Christian, let's just consider our former lives for a moment. We lived selfishly, thinking that this life was all about us. Our happiness was at the center of our purpose for existence. 
And when others got in the way, we wanted to make it a practice of punishing them with, both with our words and actions. And because of this, we were heading down a path of death and the just wrath of God for all eternity. Now, consider the good news of Psalm 108.3. Unlike us, the Lord is compassionate and gracious slow to anger and abounding in faithful love. Isn't that good news for angry people like you and me? The righteous anger and eternal love of God, it met at the cross where he gave up his precious son in our place. The Lord's anger, it didn't lead him to crush his people, it led him to crush his son so that his righteous anger would be turned away from us so that we would be redeemed from our sin and experience His fatherly favor for all eternity. In Christ, the righteous anger of God was turned away from us, so we must turn our sinful anger away from one another and from others. In Christ, the righteous anger of God was turned away from us, so we must turn our sinful anger away from the Lord in all of our circumstances. In Christ, the righteous anger of God was turned away from us, so we must fight our sin every day, including the sin of anger. This isn't just like a one-time fight and it's over. It's an everyday choice to go to war with your sin. In the gospel, not only have we been forgiven of all of our sin that includes our sinful anger, but we've also been freed from the enslaving power of sin that includes our sinful anger. Because Jesus was raised from the dead and because we are united to him by faith, we can actually say no now to our sin. And only a right understanding and application of the gospel will be able to put our heart in a posture to humbly receive the implanted word which is able to save our soul. The same word that has been implanted into our hearts at our conversion is the same word that we must keep receiving and believing and hearing. If we would kill our anger, we must daily be exposed to the living and active word of God. The only way, the only way for sinful habits and sinful impulses to be changed is through a steady intake of the gospel and the full counsel of God's word. Through the power of the Spirit, the same word that saved you will be the same word that conforms your life to Jesus and the same word that brings you home to glory. This is the solution to our sinful anger, a consistent lifetime of giving ourselves to the humble hearing and receiving of the word. You see, what we give ourselves to most will be what comes out of our hearts when the pressures of life bear down on us. If this is true, we must open our Bibles every day, looking, looking, and looking to be reminded of the character and promises of God. If this is true, we must come on Sunday morning actively listening and participating. If this is true, then we need to be constantly inviting others to remind us of what is true. We need to listen more, talk less, And allow others to help us in humility. James is telling the Christian this morning that the gospel isn't just something they need out there, but something we still need. 
in the moment, faulty wisdom from the flesh says, I need to take matters into my own hands quickly with volume and force. This is the contrast of the Bible in Scripture and how it views things. So, an angry person, a person that gives in to their sinful anger. Sinful anger is, is both a fool and foolishness. But here's what godly wisdom is. Here's what a godly man or woman is. This is the consistent practice. James 3.17, commit this to memory. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peace-loving, gentle, compliant, full of mercy and good fruits, unwavering without pretense. Is that verse what you want your life to look like? Is that the type of life and legacy you want to leave when you die? I know it is for me. Don't you want to be done with your angry words and actions and the bad fruit that they produce? You can repent today and turn to Christ and be forgiven of your sinful anger and begin living a life in active pursuit of honoring God. You can do that today. Jesus is very merciful. There is more mercy in Christ than there is sin in you. If you're not a Christian, you can repent today and turn to Christ and be forgiven of all your sin and begin living for a better king and a better kingdom. This life isn't all there is. You can live for something better. The people in my life that reflect the wisdom from above are those who make it a regular practice of listening into and submitting to God's word. The people in my life who reflect the wisdom from above tend to listen well, talk less, and are slow to anger. These people the Lord has blessed me with are quick to show me mercy, and that is a grace to a sinner like myself. You and I need the Lord's help, don't we? We can't do this on our own. We need Him and His people. Praise God that He has given us and will give us help through His Spirit, by His Word. When you wake up tomorrow morning, resolve to go to war with your sin, do so knowing that in Christ, His mercies are new. And He actually delights in helping His people. His help is readily available when you draw near to Him. Live tomorrow knowing with certainty that Jesus has finished the work of salvation on your behalf. This can be a joyful pursuit, although hard. When you open your Bible tomorrow, do so asking him to speak to you through his word. And when you don't feel like anything is working, feel like I've tried that, keep choosing obedience and trusting in the Lord and his word that it won't return void. Trust and obey knowing the Lord is always working. He always is, even when we can't see it. I can't guarantee you that if you do all these things, your, your anger will vanish and it'll just be overcome. But I can guarantee that if you don't, they won't be overcome. That it won't. Keep your eyes towards heaven and very soon, very soon, your Savior is coming back. And there will be no more fighting our sinful anger. We will see him face to face and our desires will finally and fully be for him forever. That day is coming. Don't lose heart. 
When we live this way together as a church, we will look strange and different. May we never stop fighting until the end by the grace of God. My dear brothers and sisters, understand this. Everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to anger. For human anger does not accomplish God's righteousness. Therefore, ridding yourselves of all moral filth and evil that is so prevalent, humbly receive the implanted word which is able to save your souls. Would you pray with me? Father, we come before you in the name of your Son. God, and we're thankful for your word. Your word is sharp, it cuts. But we're thankful that your word doesn't cut for no purpose. We know that your word cuts and your intention is to reveal the areas of our lives that are killing us slowly so that we might put those things to death and that we might live. Father, help us. Help us to keep our eyes on Jesus. Lord, we thank you that in Christ all of our sin has been forgiven and that we've been freed from our sins so that we can fight until the day you take us home and we rest forever in glory. Father, we thank you for your word. It's in the matchless name of Jesus we pray. Amen.